All right, now on to today's program. Francis Gary Powers Jr. is the son of Francis Gary and Claudia Powers. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in philosophy from California State University, Los Angeles, and a master's degree in public administration from our own George Mason University here in Virginia. He's the founder and chairman emeritus of the Cold War Museum, uh, located just 45 minutes west of Washington, D.C. Gary founded the museum in 1996 to honor Cold War veterans, preserve Cold War history, and educate future generations about this period in our history. As chairman of the Presidential Advisory Committee for the Cold War Theme Study, he works with the National Park Service and leading Cold War experts to identify historic Cold War sites for commemoration, interpretation, and preservation. Recently, he consulted for a, uh, and perhaps you watched this, I enjoyed it, he consulted for Steven Spielberg's Cold War thriller, Bridge of Spies, about James Donovan, who brokered the 1962 spy exchange between Rudolf Abel and Gary's father, YouTube pilot Francis Gary Powers Sr. Because of his efforts to establish the Cold War Museum, the Junior Chamber of Commerce selected Gary as one of the 10 outstanding young Americans in 2002. Gary lectures internationally and appears regularly on History Channel, Discovery, and A&E channels. It is really a thrill to have him with us to talk on his new book. Please join me in welcoming Gary Powers. Thank you very much for the warm welcome. Jamie, thanks for the introduction and for the Virginia Historical Society for having me out on this anniversary date, the 58th anniversary of the shoot down of the U-2 in which my father was shot down over the former Soviet Union. So it's an honor to be here today. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming out to hear me talk about this book called Letters from a Soviet Prison. To start, I'm going to talk a little bit about this movie that some people have seen and some people probably haven't. Who in the audience has seen the movie Bridge of Spies? So it looks like about half. Who has not seen it? Okay, a little less than half. For those of you who have not seen it, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to give away the ending. <laughs> we all know that dad gets exchanged for a Soviet spy at the Glinicker Bridge, Potsdam, Germany, on February 10th of 1962. Now, I'm very glad that dad walked across that bridge. If he didn't, I wouldn't be here. So for me, him walking across that bridge led to my existence. Now, when I found out about this movie, Bridge of Spies, and of all people, Spielberg was going to do this movie, a rumor, I'm thinking, oh, why would he do this? He has no reason to do this movie that would portray my father. I found out about this rumor in June of 2014. Then in July of 2014, I got confirmation that Spielberg, of all people, was going to do this movie. And my first thought was, how do you get in touch with Steven Spielberg? <laughs> you just can't pick up the phone. Hey, Steve, I've got an idea. Everybody wants a piece of him. Everybody wants to pitch some Hollywood thriller to him. So I tried to reach out to some friends in Hollywood, got dead ends. I resorted to Google. I typed in his name, his movie's names, found people who worked with him, typed in their names, found their email addresses, about six or seven of them. So I sent an unsolicited email to them for Mr. Spielberg. And I basically said the following. Hello, my name is Gary Powers Jr. I understand that Steven Spielberg is interested in doing a movie that will portray my father. We'd like to reach out and establish contact to express the Powers family's concerns. If he bases the portrayal of my father on the misinformation of the time, 
they'd be painting him in a negative light. If they based it off the declassified information that's come to surface the last 50 plus years, they'd be painting him as a hero to our country. So for obvious reasons, it was very important to reach out and try to establish contact. I was able to get a call back as a result of my email from Mark Platt. Mark Platt was the producer on this film. He's better known for his production of Wicked on Broadway. So very well respected in the industry. Mark and I talked for about an hour uh, on or about July 15th of 2014. At the end of the conversation, I think he liked what I had to say. He offered to hire me on as a technical consultant. So I said, sure, I'd love to do this. I get the contract in the mail. I start reading through it. It's boilerplate. I'm to answer questions. I'm to provide audio tapes or film of my father talking about his experiences so they can listen firsthand to what he had gone through. I'm to go on set as required to be on set and, and consult as necessary. At the very end of the contract, it says, they don't have to listen to me. <laughs> hmm. The very last sentence, if I don't like the end result, I can't sue. Oh boy, tie my hands, use the family's name, and then do whatever they want. So I thought long and hard about whether I should sign on to this or not. And at the end of the day, I did sign on the bottom line. I'm very glad I did. The Powers family really likes the movie. It is historically accurate in the big picture. The themes of this movie, the Cold War, the duck and cover drills that many of us went through as kids, uh, the fear and the tensions between the Soviets and the Americans during this time period are very, very well portrayed. What happened to East Germans trying to escape over the wall, being shot, very accurately portrayed. So the big picture is historically accurate. But in their first line of the movie, it says something to the effect of inspired by historic events. Inspired. Doesn't mean documentary, it's telling the exact details. So you have to remember that this is Hollywood. They embellish, they do dramatic effect, they do artistic liberties. So while the big picture is historically accurate, the details of each scene are not 100% accurate. So please keep that in mind when you're watching this movie or any movie from Hollywood. Even if it's based on true events, the details are probably not 100% accurate. So to start today's presentation, I'm going to show a quick two and a half minute clip from the movie Bridge of Spies to set the stage for today's talk. Do you know how people will look at us? The family 
afraid of traitor. Everyone deserves a defense. Every person matters. Why do they want this negotiation? It's Berlin. Just tell me that you're not going to be in any danger. I don't even care if it's the truth. Give me something to hold on to. When I was growing up in Southern California, I was aware that my father had been shot down over the former Soviet Union, imprisoned by the KGB, and ultimately exchanged for Soviet spy. But as a kid growing up in this family, this was fairly normal. We talked about this. My perception as a young kid was that everybody's dad had been through something like this. <laughs> that perception changed on August 1st, 1977, when my father was killed in a helicopter crash while working for NBC television in Los Angeles. I was 12 years old at the time. I come home to a house full of people who inform my mom and I the bad news. Our lives are turned upside down. I become very introverted. Don't understand why the press calls the house to ask questions. Why friends at school would tell me something they knew about my dad. All of a sudden, these peers at school would know something about me and my family, but I wouldn't really know anything about them or their family. So this was a little bit of an adjustment that I went through after the loss of my father. Throughout high school, I would introduce myself as Gary. That way, I wouldn't have to answer that inevitable question. Oh, Gary Powers, any relations to? I wasn't ready to talk about it. I was mourning. I was trying to figure out who dad was, who I was. Um, and so high school was a difficult uh, transition for me. In college, I came out of my shell. I was curious, wanted to find out more about my father so I knew how to answer questions. So I started to do research. When I started my research, I didn't start it to vindicate my dad. I started it to find out the truth so I knew how to answer these questions that were people asking me. They had an interest. And sometimes I didn't know the answers. So this is what started me on this journey to find out as much as I could about my father, the U2 incident. So the first person I went to uh, in college, after going to the library and seeing him on the cover of Time Magazine and Newsweek and some other uh, publications of the era, uh, was my mom. I talked to her extensively. Then I talked to my sister. Then I talked to my aunts and uncles in Southwest Virginia, trying to find out as much as I could about my dad. The more I learned from family, the more questions there were. And I realized I had to first understand more about the Cold War to learn more about my father. And that's where my research led. Started talking to CIA officials, Air Force officials, people who flew with my father during this time period, trying to find out as much as I could about what took place on May 1st of 1960. Well, the more I learned, the more questions there were. 
And I realized I had to understand more about the Cold War to understand the U-2 incident to learn more about my father. And so that's where my research led. Started talking to World War II veterans, reading as much as I could on the end of World War II, which happens to correspond with the origins of the Cold War. The Potsdam Agreement, the Marshall Plan, the Berlin Airlift, uh, these origins of the Cold War, the events that shaped this 46-year time period up through December of 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. As part of this research, I started collecting items from family members. I was very fortunate to find my dad's letters that he wrote to and from his loved ones while incarcerated. So I started to data enter these letters in in about 1996 while I'm at George Mason University going through graduate school. In my spare time, I would be at home and I'd start to data enter these letters in. Eventually, I wanted to have them published so that there was a written account, a historical record of what he wrote, he thought, he did in prison. And I was thinking at the time that in order to help um, uh, squelch the conspiracy theories and the rumors that circulated around, how could someone argue with his written word? He was not lying to himself in prison when he was writing down his thoughts and feelings. He was trying to remember the shoot down, the sequence of events, he was trying to remember what took place in the trial, uh, in the interrogations, uh, and some uh, other uh, recollections that he was having. So I started to collect these letters and these artifacts. From my research, the story I'm going to tell you uh, is basically uh, from what my father told me, from what I, what I read about in his book, Operation Overflight, from what I've read about in other books over the last 25 plus years, FOIA requests that I've gotten through CIA and other government agencies, and even, even some of the rumors and speculation that circulated around. So on May, um, let me back up for one moment, uh, with my father and the May 1st mission. In order to understand the May 1st mission, you have to understand his mindset. Dad was a pilot. This is all he ever wanted to do was to fly a plane. His first plane ride was at a country fair when he was about 12 years old in about 1931. At that time, he remarks to some of his sisters, I left my heart up there. He wanted to be a pilot. In 1950, after graduating from Milligan College in Tennessee, uh, my father enlisted in the US Air Force against his father's wishes. His dad, my grandfather, wanted my father to be a doctor. They were paid well. Dad grew up in the depression in the coal fields of Southwest Virginia. There was one part that I read in, um, in his letters uh, that they were not worried about the next dollar that came in, they were worried about the next nickel that came in. And again, this is the Depression era, so my father grew up as a young boy in that era. Um, so my father enlists in the US Air Force, 1950. He's trained to fly F-84s out of Turner, Georgia, in, um, uh, down south. He's there for about three years, four years, between 1950 and 1954, flying F-84s. 1955, he starts to be recruited by the CIA to fly the new top-secret U-2 spy plane. 1955, he resigns from the U.S. Air Force. He takes a civilian job uh, with the CIA to fly these new top-secret U-2 spy planes over foreign countries overseas. At the time, in 1955, this is top secret. No one has ever heard of this plane. Uh, it was developed by the CIA to do overhead reconnaissance. 
It was specifically designed uh, by Kelly Johnson, head of Lockheed Skunk Works Aircraft Corporation. He designs the plane. Uh, the General LeMay and the Air Force, the CIA, are trying to figure out who's going to control it. Eisenhower wants it to be run by the CIA. His rationale was the following. If it's a military plane with a military pilot flying over a foreign hostile country, that would be considered an act of war. But if it was a civilian pilot in a civilian plane flying over a foreign hostile country, it would be espionage, a slap on the wrist. So uh, CIA has control of this program. They scour the Air Force to find a uh, uh, fighter pilots that can do these missions. That is one of the ones that is selected. He starts to fly in 1956. To the left of the stage here, or your right, we have two uh, easels. On one of the easels is one of the photographs my father took from his first mission uh, that flew over the Soviet Union. This particular photo is of Baghdad, the presidential palace. That was one of the targets on this particular mission of November 6, 1956. The other image is his flight map. So it details the route that he took on this first mission that penetrated Soviet airspace that he did. So my father is recruited by the CIA in 1955. He is trained at Area 51 in the Nevada desert. He starts to serve in Turkey, Inchulik Air Force Base near Adana. There for the next four and a half years, he's flying these flights over the former Soviet Union and other countries such as India, Pakistan, Middle Eastern countries, Eastern European countries, uh, the Soviet Union, as well as China, Tibet. So it's not just the Soviet Union that he's flying over, but other countries as needed. There are some 24 pilots in the first batch of U-2 pilots that are recruited. They're stationed all around the former Soviet Union, some in Japan, some uh, in the UK, uh, some in Turkey, some back home in the United States. So my father, after four and a half years of missions, has flown 27 successful missions. At this time, uh, in about 1960, he's one of the most experienced pilots, the most number of hours in the aircraft. He is selected to fly the May 1st mission. This mission is going to fly across the entire width of the former Soviet Union, from Peshawar, Pakistan, over Sverdlovsk, to Buda, Norway, above the Arctic Circle. It's approximately a nine-hour flight, some 2,400 miles. So my father is selected to do this mission. He uh, wakes up May 1st very early, puts on his flight suit, does his pre-breathing, looks at the orders and the targets, uh, is uh, authorized to go. He takes off at about 6 a.m. He crosses over the former Soviet Union's border at approximately 68,000 feet. He starts to flip on and off the camera switches, that will take the photographic imagery of the ground below. He's four hours into his mission. He's at an altitude of 70,500 feet over the city of Sverdlovsk in the central part of the former Soviet Union. There, there's a bright orange flash that lights up the exterior of the canopy. A shockwave hits the plane, pushes the plane forward, throws my dad back in his seat. My dad realizes that something's gone wrong. The controls no longer respond. You can't fly a plane without a tail section. The near miss of a Soviet SA-2 missile has exploded near enough to the tail section to cause structural failure. As a result, the nose pitches forward, the wings snap off, 
and my father finds himself spinning down towards the ground in the wreckage. He falls from 70,500 feet to approximately 30,000 feet before bailing out of the airplane. He does not use the ejection seat. If he did, he would have severed his legs on the way out. The U-2 cockpit is very small, very tight, very compact. And in order to eject, you have to be in a perfect position or else you could lose a limb. Realizing this, my father does the following. He opens up the canopy, which floats off into space. He undoes his harness and is immediately sucked up halfway out of the cockpit. He is still connected by his air hose. So he's half in the cockpit, half out of the cockpit, spinning down towards the ground, can no longer reach the destruct button that's on the dashboard of the cockpit of the airplane. He's realizing he's getting closer and closer to the ground. He breaks free of the air hose, falls free of the airplane. His parachute opens automatically at 15,000 feet. He parachutes down to the ground. That's what my father told me as a young boy. That's what I uh, read uh, in uh, his letters. Um, and I want to compare it to how Spielberg did it in his movie. Now, Spielberg took his artistic genius to make it that much more dramatic, to keep you, the audience, on the edge of your seat. So in the shoot-down sequence in the movie Bridge of Spies, my father is flying along at 70,000 feet. He sees two missiles fly up the side of the plane. Dad never saw those missiles. That was Hollywood. The third missile in the movie explodes behind the tail section, pushes the plane forward, the engines conk out, the plane is in a nosedive. The wings stay on. It's gaining speed. The canopy is starting to crack. It's building dramatic effect. Um, my father is thinking about the destruct button. He thinks about getting out of the plane first. Um, he undoes his harness. Uh, then the canopy shatters. He's sucked up out of the plane. In the movie, he's still connected by his air hose. But it's 10 feet of air hose wildly swinging around the fuselage, trying to crawl hand over hand back into the cockpit. Dramatic effect. He gets to the cockpit. He's trying to reach the destruct button. He's a foot away, six inches away, half inch away. The air hose breaks. He falls through the airplane. His parachute opens. He parachutes down to the ground. It's just a little comparison to what actually happened versus how one depicted it in Hollywood. So after dad is in the parachute, he's parachuting down to the ground. He's noticing trees, lakes, forests in the distance, the city of Sperdlovsk beneath him. The closer he gets to the ground, the more he sees a dark car following his descent. He lands on the outskirts of a collective farm, the farmers working the fields, the kids working the fields with their parents rush up to him, help him with his backpack, his parachute, um, start to ask him questions in Russian. Well, dad doesn't speak Russian. He shrugs his shoulders. This makes one of the farmers a little nervous. Who is this guy? Falls out of the sky, doesn't speak our language. Holds a pitchfork up near him. Moments later in the dirt, my dad's able to communicate. U-S-A. So they know he's an American. A few more moments go, up, uh, go by. The black car shows up. Two men get out put him in the back seat, take him to a holding area in the central part of town. There for the next few hours, he's asked some basic questions by someone who speaks broken English. Who are you? What are you doing here? Where'd you come from? To which my dad would reply, 
My name is Gary Powers. I am lost. I had a mechanical malfunction. Can you take me to the American Embassy? No, that's not permitted. Can you take me to the American Red Cross? No, that's not permitted. And this is how it went the first few hours of his capture. Later that afternoon, early evening, KGB guards from Moscow show up, put him in the back seat of an airplane, armed guard, take him to Moscow's airport. They shuttle him over by car to Lubyanka prison. Lubyanka prison is the infamous KGB prison, part of and adjacent to the KGB headquarters downtown Moscow. So this is where my father finds himself, his first night of captivity on May 1st of 1960. For the next five days, the Soviets say nothing about the shootdown. But at home in Washington, D.C., President Eisenhower, Alan Dulles, head of the CIA, State Department officials, and Air Force officials are meeting. They're trying to find out where's the plane, where's the pilot, why didn't it land in Buda, Norway, where it should have landed had it been a successful mission. But so far, uh, the American government, the analysts of the CIA, hasn't been able to determine the fate of the pilot or the plane. Then on May 5th, Khrushchev, premier of the Soviet Union, comes up to center stage at a press conference, and he very gleefully announces to the world, ah, comrades, we've shot down an American spy plane, but intentionally makes no reference as to the pilot's fate. The CIA, uh, talking with the president and their administration, think that if they had had the pilot alive, that Khrushchev would have paraded him around as evidence. As a result, the administration under Eisenhower authorizes, the re um, authorizes a, a cover story to be implemented that basically says the following. An unarmed weather research plane may have accidentally strayed across the border after the pilot had radioed trouble with his auction equipment. Once the cover story was in place, two days go by, Khrushchev comes back up to center stage on May 7th, gleefully announces to the world at his next press conference, ah, comrades, not only did we shoot down the plane, but we also have captured the pilot, Francis Gary Powers, who's quite alive and kicking, and who's confessed to spying for the CIA. So I've got to take you all back 58 years. In 1960, very few people had heard of the CIA. Top secret, government agency, created in 1947 as part of the National Security Act to safeguard Americans at home by gathering intelligence information from abroad. So it was a very big embarrassment for Eisenhower, World War II hero, uh, beloved statesman, uh, our president, very well respected, to have to admit that we, America, had a spy agency and that we've been flying over these foreign hostile countries for the last four years. Eisenhower takes full responsibility for his actions. He could have allowed Alan Dulles, head of the CIA, to be a scapegoat, take the fall for this operation that was not successful. But Eisenhower realized that if he did that, then public opinion would probably be, or would probably think, that he, as president, was not in control of his own country. So Eisenhower steps up to the plate, holds a press conference, and he calls this a vital but distasteful necessity in order to advert another Pearl Harbor. And while all this is unfolding, Khrushchev is furious. He's demanding an Eisenhower apology to the, uh, to the U-2 flights and a stop to the U-2 flights over the Soviet Union. Eisenhower refuses to apologize, 
but does stop the flights over the former Soviet Union. Eisenhower authorized each and every U-2 flight over the Soviet Union. And he admitted this and acknowledged this uh, when he was at his press conference taking full responsibilities for his actions. Well, while all this is unfolding, Dad has been stuck in a Russian prison cell, going through the first week of interrogations. Bright spotlight, grueling questions, threats of death, no physical torture, a lot of mental anguish, mental torture, um, anxiety. So uh, some of you might be familiar with Mutt and Jeff or Good Cop, Bad Cop. One KGB agent would come in yelling and screaming, rough and gruff, you tell us everything or we'll shoot you tomorrow. The next guy would come in, Mr. Powers, you help us, we can help you. Trying to get him to cooperate, trying to get him to uh, reveal secrets. Um, most likely by any means necessary, short of physical abuse. So during the first seven days of my dad's interrogations at Lubyanka prison, he was lying to his captors outright, holding back as much information as possible, misleading them any way he could. But then on May 7th, international headlines around the world, U2 shot down, summit conference in jeopardy, Eisenhower caught line, the type of headlines that were being printed. The KGB guard in charge of the interrogations, a copy of the New York Times in his hands, rushes into the cell room, shoves the newspaper in my dad's face, yells at him, you've lied to us. You told us you were trained in Arizona. Well, the New York Times says you were trained in Nevada at Area 51. You might as well tell us everything. We'll get it out of your American press anyways. <laughs> so, Dad is stuck between a rock and a hard place. If he tells the full truth, he's given away secrets. If he lies to him, he could get shot, face the death penalty for espionage. So my father resorts to the following during his three months of solitary confinement and interrogations. He tells the full truth when he knows they can verify the information in the press, gives him credibility. Um, lies to him outright when he knows there's no way they can find out the answers. Names of pilots, number of missions, specifications about the equipment on board. Then he gives a part truth, a part lie, dances around the subject when he knows that they know something about the question they're asking, but not enough to contradict his answer, such as the altitude he was flying. My father always maintained that he was at the maximum altitude of 68,000 feet when he was shot down. He did this for two reasons. First, close enough to be believable, yet far enough away to keep other pilots out of harm's way should the missions continue. My father thought that if he could convince the Soviets to explode their warhead at 68,000 feet, the maximum altitude, there would be a 2,000 to 7,000 foot buffer between where the planes were flying and where the missiles would explode. The second reason, get a message back home to his employers, the CIA. Hey guys, I'm not telling the full truth. And this was eventually discovered when he was brought back home and debriefed. When my father was in prison, uh, the first three months, Lubyanka, this KGB prison downtown Moscow, he is allowed to write letters home to his family. And I have these letters uh, in my collection. I've been able to date or enter them. When I first started reading through them, there's no censorship. So for the longest time, I thought that they allowed him to write his letters. He wrote them. They went out. Not uh, uh, too long ago, maybe 
mm, a year and a half, two years ago, I was found some of Dad's audio tapes that he had used when he was writing his book, Operation Overflight. So I listened through them, and I discovered through that audio tape that they censored the letters in the following way. They'd have him write the rough draft of the letter. They'd look at it. They'd scratch out this. They'd change this. They'd move this around. They'd give it back to him. Rewrite the letter. He would rewrite the letter. Two or three drafts later, they would allow him to send it out. And so the final letter looked like it had not been censored. From what my father told, uh, was talking about in this audio tape, he felt that they were doing that to prevent a code from being inserted in the letter. Switching paragraphs, taking out sentences, putting a sentence in that didn't uh, change the meaning, but wasn't his words. So that's what he thought, is that they were trying to prevent him from sending a code. Now, the very first letter that my father wrote home uh, was to his wife. And then shortly after that, uh, the same day, he wrote a letter to his mom and dad. Now, the letter, he's trying to convince his mother not to worry. He's going through the interrogations, bright spotlight, grueling questions, threats of death. Yet in the letter, he's trying to make sure that she's aware that he's okay, that he's being treated better than he expected. Uh, so I'm going to read this first letter to you uh, that my dad wrote from Moscow. His first letter to his mom and dad dated 26 May of 1960. Dear mom and dad, I was told that I could write a letter to you and Barbara. I have finished the letter to Barbara and am now writing to you. I sincerely hope that you both are well. I was very worried about how the news would affect you. Mom, please take care of yourself and you can believe me when I say I'm being treated much better than I expected to be. I get more than enough to eat and plenty of sleep. I have been furnished books to read and I get to walk in the fresh air every day that it doesn't rain. So you see, there's really no need to worry. Dad, you see that mom takes care of herself. Don't let her worry too much for all the worrying in the world cannot accomplish anything. I know that you know that I'm in a bad situation. I don't know what's going to happen. I do know that the investigation and interrogation are still going on, and after they are over, there will be a trial. I am being tried for espionage, and according to Article 2 of the Criminal Code, which has been read to me, I can be punished by from 7 to 15 years imprisonment and death in some cases. Where I fit in, I don't know. That will be for the court to decide. I maybe should not tell you this, tell you what the punishment may be, but I think you should know the truth. I'm very sorry about all this. I'm sorry for all the pain and anxiety I have caused you and I'm still causing you. When I first arrived here in Moscow, I had no appetite at all. All I could do was think about you and Barbara and all the worry and anxiety I was causing. Believe me, I'm sincerely sorry for all of this. When I had to bail out of the plane, I got a few scratches on my right shin and a black eye. Other than that, I was in good health. A lady doctor has treated both, and now everything is fine. On May 2nd, I was taken on a tour of Moscow. I enjoyed it very much. It's a beautiful city, and perhaps and the people here seem very proud of it. I have been told that there's been a lot of press about me in the States. I was also told that an article appeared in one of the papers where you, Dad, asked for permission to come to see me. I was told that if the U.S. government gave you such permission, that you would be allowed to see me if you came here. I would prefer that you wait until the trial or after when I would be able to tell you the results. 
I will leave the decision of when to come up to you. I hate for you to go to all the expense to come here, and even though I would like to see you, uh, I don't want you to go through that expense. I have also written Barbara about this. Tell all the sisters and their families hello for me and tell them that I'm as fine as can be expected. I know that you worry about me, but I don't want you to. I assure you that I am being treated good, and as I said before, much better than expected. I guess you have the impression that I had before that I would be treated badly, but it is not so. It is dark outside now, and I should stop to go to bed. I am anxiously awaiting a letter from you. I do get fairly lonely here, even though I spend most of this, my spare time reading. It's not a loneliness for people, but for people I know. Please take care of yourselves and try not to worry too much. Remember that I love all of you very much and miss you more than I can say. May God bless all of you and keep you well. Your son, Francis. P.S. My return address is <laughs> Mr. Francis G. Powers, USSR Moscow, Zurzinski Street, number two. That's the KGB prison address. So this is the first letter that dad writes home. And the letters, um, I, I've forgotten the number of them. I think there are about 85 letters that I have found to his mom and dad and to his first wife. I found the letters that my uh, grandparents and my aunts and uncles wrote to him in prison. So those are included. Uh, basically, he writes one, he gets one back. He writes one, he gets one back. I've tried to put them in order so you can follow along with the dialogue. But sometimes two letters would arrive before one letter was sent. So it's a little bit hard to follow, uh, but we've done our best job to get it in a chronological order. In addition, what I discovered is that my father had his first wife's letters, but I could not find her letters. So what I think happened is when he came home, he got his letters back and he gave her letters back to her. I think that's what happened since I couldn't find them in, in our files or in the footlockers of my father's. Another interesting thing that I found out uh, through these letters that I researched and eventually published is that my grandfather, Oliver Powers, dad's dad, was very cantankerous, very stubborn. He was a coal miner, Southwest Virginia. He was a shoe cobbler, owned a shoe shop in Norton, Virginia, and would do all the shoes for the miners. Um, I think my father and myself have a little bit of that cantankerous in us. Uh, he ended up writing Rudolf Abel in June of 1960. He ended up writing Khrushchev in June of 1960. About a month after the shootdown, Oliver Powers from Pound, Virginia, is writing a world leader and a convicted spy in a federal penitentiary. Well, he's trying to do anything he can to get the release of his boy. So I'm going to read you this first letter that I found uh, to Rudolph Abel from my grandfather. It's dated June 2nd of 1960, Pound, Virginia. Dear Colonel Abel, I'm the father of Francis Gary Powers, who's connected with the U-2 plane incident of several weeks ago. I am quite sure that you are familiar with this international incident and also the fact that my son is being currently held by the Soviet Union on an espionage charge. You can readily understand the concern that a father would have for his son and for a strong desire to have my son released and brought home. My present feeling is that I would be more than happy to approach the State Department and the President of the United States for an exchange for the release of my son. By this, I mean that I would urge you 
uh, urge and do everything possible to have my government release you and return you to your country if the powers in your country would release my son and let him return to me. If you are so inclined to go along with this arrangement, I would appreciate you so advising me and also so advising the powers in your country along these lines. I would appreciate hearing from you in regards to this as soon as possible. Very truly yours, Oliver Powers. So this, to me, was a shock. I never knew before getting these letters together that my grandfather helped to start the process of the exchange between Colonel Rudolf Abel, the Soviet spy, and my father. And to my surprise and delight, I also found Rudolf Abel's letter back to my grandfather. On June 12th, he responds, Rudolf I. Abel, number 816, pound, two pound Virginia, uh, for the letter of June 2nd received June 10th. Mr. Oliver Powers, dear Mr. Powers, much as I appreciate and understand your concern for the safety of your and return of your son, I regret to say that all things considered, I am not the person to whom your request should have been directed. <laughs> Obviously, this should have been my wife. Unfortunately, by order of the Department of State, uh, Department of Justice, U.S., I am not permitted to write to my family and so cannot convey your request to them directly. Sincerely yours, R.I. Abel. So at the time when Abel is in prison, uh, every letter to and from his jail cell is intercepted and read by the CIA and or the FBI. So the CIA gets wind that my grandfather had the audacity to write Rudolf Abel. Two guys in suits show up to Pound, Virginia, go into the shoe store, Mr. Powers, Please don't meddle in our affairs. You could make it worse for your son. We will take it from here. And sure enough, they did. They get in touch with Rudolph, uh, with, um, Rudolph Abel's attorney, uh, who is James Donovan. James Donovan is the attorney highlighted in Spielberg's film, Bridge of Spies. Um, uh, Donovan prevented Abel from getting the death penalty. He suggested that maybe we could exchange one, or, uh, one for the other in the future. And sure enough, this is what he does. He brokers the exchange behind the scenes, talking to the Soviets and the East Germans, stepping on eggshells, trying to get the release of my father for Rudolf Abel, trying to also get in the release of Frederick Pryor, a student, American student, who was caught in East Berlin as the wall, Berlin Wall, was going up in 61. So he's able to do this uh, behind-the-scenes negotiations. Then on February 10th, a cold, dark, foggy morning, right out of a John Le Carré novel, two spies are on each side of the Glenacher Bridge in Potsdam, Germany. On one side of the bridge is a KGB spy, Rudolf Abel, with his CIA and FBI entourage. On the other side is my father with his KGB entourage. They are positively ID'd. They walk home to their respective freedoms. Rudolf Abel returns home, a hero of the Soviet Union, a parade in his honor, postage stamps in his likeness. My father returns home to an American public that doesn't really know what to make of this event. There have been editorials written in the newspaper that my father had defected, had landed the plane intact, had spilled his guts and told the Soviets everything he knew, or hadn't followed orders and committed suicide, all of which were part truth, mistruths, some innuendos of the time. Dad was extensively debriefed by CIA, Kelly Johnson, the designer of the airplane, Air Force officials, and State Department officials. 
three weeks of debriefings at a safe house in Maryland, followed by a Senate Select Committee hearing downtown Washington, D.C. Uh, three of the senators that were on this committee that reviewed my father's uh, case were Prescott Bush, President Bush's grandfather, Barry Goldwater out of Arizona, and Senator Russell, which the House office building is now named after in downtown D.C. Those three senators, their colleagues, eight hours of deliberations and questions back and forth. At the end of the session, my father is given a standing ovation, basically a pat on his back, good job for your country. He's been exonerated of any wrongdoing. But the misinformation continued to circulate around. And even today, it continues to circulate around, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have this book published, which is uh, titled Letters from a Soviet Prison, the personal journal and correspondence of CIA U-2 pilot Francis Gary Powers. It has a foreword by Sergei Khrushchev, Khrushchev's son. Sergei Khrushchev and I are friends. We've been uh, friends for about 20 plus years now. He was a professor at Brown University when I first met him. And since that time, back 20 plus years ago, we've been on several panel discussions and several lecture venues together uh, around the country. Uh, he and I um, uh, have no ill feelings towards each other or towards our fathers. We look at it from a historic perspective. Now, after um, dad was returned, uh, this misinformation was still circulating around and even today continues to circulate around part because of the internet. We all know that everything you read online is true. And therefore, these kids in high schools that are doing reports or in college that are doing research think that everything online is correct. They'll do a paper. They'll go to May 1st, 1960, February 10th of 62. They'll find the misinformation. They'll write about it. They'll turn it into a professor for a grade. They'll get it back the misinformation perpetuates itself. Oftentimes, students, and sometimes scholars, may not find the information they're looking for because it didn't happen in 1960 or 62. For example, 1998, some 38 years after the shoot-down, uh, the CIA and the Air Force hosts a declassification conference in Washington, D.C. It helps to set the record straight in regards to my father's uh, performance uh, and the U-2 incident. My father followed all of his orders. He was never ordered to commit suicide. Uh, the pin that he took with him, a little pin concealed in a hollowed out silver dollar. Dollar opens up. This is not an actual replica of the one that my father carried, but it gives you an example of what you can hide inside of a silver dollar. He took the pin out on the way down. He thought about using it. He decides to throw away the dollar, thinking it would be the first souvenir that a Russian would want. He puts the pin in his flight suit pocket. On the third strip search, it's found. He goes, oh, be very careful with that. Did not want to have a murder conviction on top of an espionage conviction. He's already in enough trouble. The Soviets test the device on a dog. The dog dies in 20 seconds from asphyxiation. The poison on the needle shuts down the central nervous system. And what I found through my research is if the pilot had taken uh, the needle, uh, his central nervous system would have shot uh, shut down, and he would have died from what appeared to be lack of oxygen. So as you probably know, the left hand of the government doesn't always know what the right hand of the government's doing. And so the pilots were never told what the cover story was, that, a U that the U-2 pilot had radioed trouble with his oxygen equipment. 
but the cover story went hand in hand with the pilot using the device. The, the device was optional to take and optional to use at the pilot's discretion in the event of torture. So this is how it was explained to my father. So my father was cleared of any wrongdoing. He followed orders. He did not uh, give away any useful information to the Soviets that they didn't already know. So he was cleared uh, back in 1962 by the, uh, by the Senate. But then in 1998, he was further cleared when the CIA and the Air Force hosted the declassification conference. That conference showed that the U-2 program was a joint CIA and US Air Force operation. One could not exist without the other. It was civilian pilots and civilian planes, because it was the CIA, but they used military bases and military personnel to assist with the mission planning, weather planning, and other aspects of the mission. So that opened up the door for Dad to be posthumously awarded some medals. And in 2000, May 1st, the 40th anniversary of the shootdown, Dad was posthumously awarded with the um, POW medal, for his incarceration, Prisoner of War Medal, the Distinguished Flying Cross, as well as the Director's Medal from the CIA. So we were very honored and humbled as a family to know that our government stepped up to the plate and posthumously awarded my father as a hero to our country. Um, then, as an added bonus, in June of 2012, the Air Force awarded my father with a Silver Star. So as a family, again, we were very honored, very humbled to know that our government came full circle. They acknowledged my father as a hero to our country uh, and that uh, they helped to set the record straight. It goes to show that it's never too late to set the record straight. And we're very honored and humbled to know that they did this after all that time. Now, but this gets back to the point about the misinformation. So this misinformation is continuing to circulate around. And kids who are doing research and even some scholars may not find this information of 1998, 2000, or 2012, because it didn't happen when the shootdown happened or when the exchange happened. And this is one of the reasons that I wanted to publish this book, uh, Letters from a Soviet Prison, that would detail my dad's thoughts and feelings, his personal uh, memories, recollections, and ideas and thoughts while he was incarcerated. Uh, after dad came home, being debriefed, he's working for the CIA for about six months, training agents on what to do if captured how to go through an interrogation, how to appear to cooperate, but when in fact you're not giving them any information of use. Dad does this for about six months. He gets hired on uh, late, uh, early 1963 for, uh, with uh, Lockheed Aircraft Corporation. He is a U-2 pilot, a test pilot, flying the U-2s for Kelly Johnson in California. Uh, he flies those missions between 63 and 70. In 1970, my dad writes his autobiography, called Operation Overflight that details his account of the U-2 incident and the U-2 program. His co-author is Kurt Gentry. Kurt Gentry's next book after this, Helter Skelter. <laughs> this one put Kurt on the map. The other book made him lots of money. So Kurt's a great guy. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, he was family friends for years and years, one of my dad's closest friends as a result of writing the book together. So dad writes this in 1970. Uh, the same month it's published, Lockheed lets him go. Some people think it was coincidence. My father believed that because he published his uh, memoirs, he ruffled somebody's feathers in the government. The government contractor, Lockheed, was asked to let him go. There's no official proof I've ever found to confirm that. 
but it is what my father believed, and I wanted to share that with you today. After being let go from Lockheed for about two years, he's on the uh, lecture circuit. Some of you might remember the Soupy Sales Show, Johnny Carson Show, late night talk shows of the era, talking about the U2 incident, the U2 program, what my father went through. Then in 72, gets a job working for KGIL radio station in the San Fernando Valley, flying a fixed wing Cessna, reporting on news, weather, and traffic for the rush hour commutes. A few years later, 1976, he gets a job with NBC Television, flying their helicopter, reporting on news, weather, and traffic, this time for the evening news. Year and a half into those assignments, August 1st, 1977, helicopter runs out of gas, crashes, he and the cameraman are killed in the accident. So that was a very, very quick overview of the U-2 incident, my father's involvement, uh, passages from letters from a Soviet prison, and what my father had gone through. Before I open this up for Q&A, I want to mention one thing about the Cold War Museum that I founded in 1996 to honor Cold War veterans, preserve Cold War history, and educate kids about this time period. I moved to Virginia in 92 to continue my research National Archives, uh, CIA retiree associations, trying to find out more information about my father and the U-2 incident. I was at George Mason University going through my graduate degree. I started to give lectures to high school students in the area. Nine times out of 10, I'd walk into a classroom to give a talk on the U-2 incident, get blank stares from the kids. They thought I was there to talk about the U-2 rock band. <laughs> yes. This was the first clue that something had to be done to preserve Cold War history. So a few years later, 1996, I end up founding the Cold War Museum. What I thought would take three years, fundraise $3 million, it shouldn't be too difficult, took 15 years. We finally got brick and mortar. November 11th, uh, 2011, we opened up at Vint Hill, Virginia, 45 miles from Washington, DC, two hours from Richmond, Virginia. Vint Hill is a former Army communication base used by NSA, CIA, ASA, Army Security Agency, to monitor electronic uh, and signal intelligence from around the world during World War II, uh, from around the world and the embassies in Washington throughout the Cold War. And then it was BRACT, Base Realignment Closure Act. It was closed down in the mid-'90s. Uh, later that, uh, in the mid-'90s, it was um, uh, uh, designated as a, a, uh, a revitalization area. The governor of Virginia appointed a task force, the Vint Hill Economic Development Authority, and for the last 15 plus years, 20 years now, they've been helping to revitalize it. There is a brewery, a winery, the museum, homes, FAA has a hub that monitors air traffic in the East Coast. There are a couple of government contractors and hundreds of thousands of cars go by this location every day between Warrenton, Gainesville, and up the 66 corridor. More information online, coldwar.org. We have an extensive collection of Cold War artifacts, items from the USS Liberty incident, the USS Pueblo incident, overhead reconnaissance platforms, SR-71, U-2, spy satellites. Uh, we have a large collection of civil defense items, having saved and salvaged the civil defense headquarters for Washington, D.C. Uh, we do spy tours of Washington. 
If you're interested in doing a spy tour, please let me know. Uh, we'll take a group of people up to the Vint Hill area, do a spy tour of Washington to Vint Hill, and then back down to Richmond. More information again online at coldwar.org. Uh, one of the few last things I want to point out before I open this up Q&A, up here on stage, this is one of the letters, uh, the envelopes that my father would make in prison. Uh, he would make these envelopes as a quota. That was his job in prison. And he would use these same letters to write home to his family. So this is what they basically look like, a standard envelope that he would make and then um, uh, write letters to and insert and mail home. The little items over here, we have the Matrushka dolls, uh, which are called also nesting dolls. This is a, a set that my father brought home from prison with him as a souvenir, along with a little uh, dog, a plastic dog, uh, that he also brought home. My father, my father was able to bring home a few items. They did not allow him to come home with rubles. Rubles were illegal to take out of the country. So they took him the day before he went to East Germany to spend his rubles. And he brought a few items home for family and friends. So we have the mobile exhibit on the U-2 incident that I take around the country. It'll be set up at the SAC Museum, the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum, Omaha, Nebraska, starting June 9th of this year, 2018. If you're interested in seeing it, you can go up there to SAC. It was displayed here for the 50th anniversary of the U-2 incident back in 2010. So a very big thank you uh, to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, to the Virginia Historical Society for having me out to be part of this banner lecture series. I'd be glad to open this up for Q&A. Thank you very much. And what I think we have to do is wait for the gentleman uh, to come around with a microphone, is I believe what's happening. So if you have a question, raise your hand, and he will get to you as soon as he can. Uh, thank you for a very interesting discussion. I wondered if um, our government knew about the capability of the Soviets to shoot down the plane. Did they think that he was out of range? Uh, and what did they tell your father about uh, being wary of being shot down? Right. OK, the gentleman's asking about the shoot down of the U-2, the capabilities of the Soviet Union. Did our government think they had that technology? At the time, uh, on or about May 1st, they knew that the Soviets had improved their weapon system. Uh, the original missile, the SA-1, could reach 60,000 feet. So for the first four or five years of these flights, the planes were flying at 70,000 feet. So they were safe. But over four years of research and development, the Soviets improved their weapon system. On the April 9th mission, prior to the May 1st mission, uh, a photograph was brought back of the SA-2 base, a new and improved missile that was being developed in the Soviet Union. Uh, my father's mission parameters for May 1st, one of the targets was Sverdlovsk, where this missile base was shown to be developing. He was to fly over it and find out if it was operational. He found out firsthand it was. Um, but up until that point in time, the CIA analysts didn't think they had the capability, didn't think they were that far ahead. But on May 1st, when you throw up eight missiles, the missiles were at the right place at the right time. The plane, the pilot, was at the wrong place at the wrong time. One missile exploded behind the tail section. One missile hit a MiG and killed a MiG pilot in friendly fire. The other six missiles we don't know what happened to, but they did not hit any targets. They fell back to Earth. Down, oh, down here in the front, up in the back. Okay, go ahead. 
the the film emphasizes Rudolph Abel's attorney, and you haven't mentioned um, the attorney that that I recall as Carl McIntyre ah. from Southwest Virginia. Could you comment on his role? Sure, yes. Um, the lady's asking about Carl McAfee. Carl McAfee was an attorney in Southwest Virginia. His law practice was above my grandfather's shoe shop in Norton. So when uh, my grandfather gets wind that his boy has been shot down, he goes up to Carl and goes, Carl, help, what do I do? So Carl and my grandfather worked together, try to figure out a way to release my father. Um, Carl is trying to get in touch with my dad, but there is no communication allowed from outside sources. Um, my father's legal defense team consisted of a Soviet a defense attorney who was basically the court-appointed attorney. And one distinction I want to mention is that in America, you are innocent until proven guilty. In the Soviet Union, you were guilty until proven innocent. Little distinction there. Um, now, the attorney that represented my father did not once object to any question that was asked. Basically, nodded his head, and my father was up on stage in the docket doing his best to prevent the release of information and to make sure that he conducted himself accordingly. Um, Carl McAfee did help my grandfather tremendously, but did not have any access to my father to represent him. Two other attorneys from Virginia, uh, appointed by the Virginia Bar Association, were allowed to go over to the Soviet Union. They were flown over, um, tried to get in touch with my father, tried to help him. They were not allowed access to him either. He was only allowed to be represented by the Soviet court-appointed defense attorney. Yes. I, I have a comment and a question. The comment is, thank you and your family for your father's courage, sacrifice, and patriotism. Thank you very much. My, thank you. My question is, have you found any major news outlet in this country that um, has run a story, the true story on your dad? Is there, you know, is that still something you're looking for? Um, as a result of the uh, medals being awarded posthumously in 2000 and in 2012, uh, all of the major news networks have run stories about that. Uh, there are some books that have been written since then uh, that are very accurate. Any book by Chris Pocock, a British author on the U2 program, the U2 incident, is very accurate. Um, there are other uh, books such as Michael Beschloss, uh, um, a presidential historian who wrote the book May Day. Very good book. Uh, Dad's autobiography, of course. Very good book. Uh, horse's mouth. Um, and of course now the letters from a Soviet prison. As a result of this lecture here today, uh, it's my understanding that we'll be broadcast on C-SPAN History TV. So that network will divulge the truth. This will, we have time for one more question. It's out here in the back. And for those of you who still have questions, I will be up uh, at the um, front desk with books for sale if anybody's interested. And I'll be glad to talk with you one-on-one -on -one while you're up there. Okay. I have right here, have, have several Thank questions. You. One of them might be I don't know enough about Russian history. Is May Day a result of this incident, or was May Day already a holiday? Ah. 
uh, May Day was already a holiday. Okay. Uh, May Day was the, 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 the highest of holidays in the Soviet Union. Uh, it's a socialist holiday, the right. workers' holiday in the workers' paradise. Okay. And so it was a day for workers to be honored um, uh, and, and uh, respected for the labor that they produce in the country. It sure. happened to be May 1st for the mission, which turned out to be a very bad day for the mission because everybody's on holiday, not a lot of air traffic in the skies over the Soviet Union, easier for them to pick him up on radar. So did, was it planned for May Day knowing that May Day was a holiday? Um, no, uh, the mission was not planned for May Day thinking it was a holiday. It was, it was planned, uh, Eisenhower said uh, in his parameters for this mission prior to the summit conference, no mission can happen after May 1st. That was just the deadline he imposed. April 27th, 28th and 29th, April 30th, weather, clouds, storms, could not take off the plane, could not get a good uh, uh, pictures of the Soviet Union. May 1st, clouds separate, sun comes out, dad goes. It's just a coincidence that was flown on May 1st. Okay, I think that's all the time we had for questions. I appreciate you coming out. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to be up at the front desk, so see me up there in a few minutes, and I'll be glad to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one.